Hello, welcome to Why Not Me. In life, we face many trials and obstacles, many challenges, and in the thick of it, we can be tempted to think, why me? But every obstacle presents an opportunity and every trial can bring triumph. So I want to encourage you to adapt a mindset of, why not me? When, when in the middle of it, when things are tough, look around and think, why not me? It's, it's happening for a purpose. And then when success is at your doorstep and all you have to do is open it, you may find yourself hesitating, questioning, is this for me? Do I deserve this? And I want to encourage you to adapt a mindset of why not me? Throw the door open wide, shout to the world, why not me? Embrace your success. I'm your coach, Todd Halls. I'm grateful to have you on this journey. Welcome to Why Not Me. Hello, hello. Welcome to Why Not Me, turning trials into triumphs, seeking and embracing success. I'm your host, Coach Todd Halls. Grateful to be here with you today and so grateful that you have decided to tune in and give a little bit of your time. I hope you find it valuable and, and get something out of it. I'm confident you will because I think our guest is outstanding. You're really going to get to uh, enjoy getting to know Keith Wasserstrom. So he is our guest and Keith is a husband. He's a dad of four, a grandpa of three, and he's a system and soul coach and so much more. His his journey uh, is pretty incredible. Uh, and I can't wait for him to share it with us. So with that, Keith, welcome to Why Not Me. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, fill in anything that may be relevant that I left out. All right. Thank you, Todd. A pleasure to be here. Um, just quickly, I was born in around Philadelphia, so I uh, lived there for six years. And I moved to Cherry Hill, which is uh, across the river. So I uh, still am a Phillies, Flyers, Sixers, Sixers and Eagles fan. Um, when I was 12, we moved to Coral Springs and I went to high school in Coral Springs. I went to Tarabella High School and uh, I was the, the uh, valedictorian uh, at Tarabella. Then I went to uh, the University of Pennsylvania, the Warden School of Business and um, ended up going to law school uh, at the University of Pennsylvania as well. And I came down here and got what I thought was the greatest job. I was at Greenberg Traurig, which was one of the best uh, firms down here in South Florida. And then um, I loved being there and I got a offer to go to uh, Baker McKenzie, which is uh, what at the time was the world's largest law firm, still might be. And I became a partner there. Uh, and then I was had the opportunity to move my practice to Hogan and Hartson, which is now Hogan and Lovells. And in the meantime, actually, I became a city commissioner in the city of Hollywood. And uh, things were truthfully going great. I, you know, was a partner at a, one of the best law firms in the world, city commissioner, a father, a husband, and uh, you know, things were literally at the top. And I remember having a conversation with somebody. Um, and I was telling them that I feel this constant pressure to uh, always uh, do better because, you know, I was president of my student government at Penn. I was a captain of the cheerleaders. I actually met my wife. She was my cheerleading partner. And um, I just had this constant pressure, I remember, just to do better because, like, uh, everyone's expecting so much from me. And uh, I remember this this uh, person, you know, a religious person, he was a rabbi, he said, uh, don't worry about it. Everything will work out. And um, sure enough, crazy as it sounds, things did work out. I uh, ended up um, getting arrested, 
and uh, it uh, that was sort of a uh, sort of a shocker to the system. Um, I'd imagine. But I wasn't necessarily worrying about you know doing better the next day. I was worried about sort of survival. I got end up having a a trial. I went to uh, we I got convicted and went to jail. And, um, you know, I was not upset. I was, obviously it's a terrible, terrible thing. It's uh, very disruptive, but, um, I always felt that it was, you know, let's say God's plan. And I got a sign of it when I went to jail, uh, the jail was crazy overcrowded. And when you go to jail, I guess, I don't know if it's for everybody, but here in South Florida, you, um, you, uh, the first day you go spend a 24 hours in a suicide watch. So they put you in a room that has sort of nothing that you could kill yourself with. And, uh, mm-hmm. as I'm walking into this room, there was a black kid sitting on the floor. Cause again, it was crazy crowded. And he said, you want my pocket Bible? And I said, you know, you don't need anymore. He goes, no, 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 you can have it. So I, I took his pocket Bible and it was the only thing I had inside that little, uh, room you know, for 24 hours. And, um, I read through the entire had, had Psalms and had Proverbs and I read through the entire, you know, uh, those two books, I guess. And, um, when I finished, you know, I got a knock on the door and my 24 hours, I guess was up. So, uh, but it was like, I sort of felt that there was something there, you know, why was this kid sitting there? Why was he offering me his Bible? And, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what I would have done, you know, twiddling my thumbs for 24 hours inside this room all day, you know, you're, you're nervous. It's your very first day in jail. So, but I just felt that, you know, God might, might've been smiling on me to some extent. You know, I, the crazy thing is, which I hate to say this because everyone I think that, you know, goes to jail says, uh, you know, I didn't do it. In my case, it's a, it's a crazy, crazy story. We can get into if you want to, but, uh, you know, knowing that I was innocent also made it a little easier for me because at every moment I just assumed that we're going to win on appeal. And, you know, one day they're just going to knock on the door and, you know, pull me out and say, you're, you're good to go. So that gave me some little uh, encouragement, I guess. Yeah. So how long, how long, what was your total duration in jail? I was sentenced for 60 days. Um, and, and the funny thing is I went in on, uh, Martin Luther King day in, uh, I think 2010 and, uh, it was like the jail was, it was an, it was a holiday. So like very few people were there. And I remember the intake woman asked me, she goes, I see you're in protective custody. And the reason I was in protective custody, because being a city commissioner, I'm sort of high profile and I was on the cover of the, uh, newspaper. So, um, she said, you know, if you go to general population, it's so overcrowded, they'll probably cut your sentence short. And that sounded tempting. You know, and I don't, I don't know the difference really protective custody versus general pop. But, yeah. uh, I said, you know, no, I'll stick with my protective custody. It just sounds better. Right. So when I got to through the whole process and I got into my cell, I'm in a, um, a cell where it has, it has, I think, uh, let's say six jail cells on the top and six, six cells on the bottom. And there's typically, you know, I guess two people in each of those cells, but in this protective custody, there was only, I think, uh, eight of us or something like that. So everyone had their own cell, which I think is a lot better than the the, uh, the, the general population next door. There was probably eight to 10 people in each cell, same cell. Oh, and there was people all over the floor. They had roll up beds all over the floors. 
in the uh, in the whole area because there's a the jail sales are in the you know it's like a it's like a pizza pie in the middle of the pizza is the um where the guards are and then everything every different uh group is uh, like a slice of pizza you had the uh, okay. you know the pedophiles are in one section the uh you know the hardened criminals the murderers are in one section general population is just probably different type of misdemeanors and again the protective custody we had a little wedge and again it was platter room and everything else it was a lot more convenient you know i guess everything was a lot easier because i was in protective custody and you know, there was other there was a cop in the room in the protective custody with me there was a guy accused of killing gus bullis who was a famous uh he was the founder of miami subs so that was interesting there's a football player that was in there with me it was just a random group of guys. It's one guy that was uh, like that became the first viral video. And this is again 2010. He uh, beat up a homeless guy and filmed it, and that became a viral video. So, because he was famous, they put him into protective custody. So, it was, yeah. it was interesting. A little scary, you know, at first, but uh, everyone was sort of welcoming to the extent that they could be, and uh, whatever I, 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 I made do. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. So you, um, things are going great, but you're feeling this pressure and, uh, a rabbi just says it's, it's all going to be okay. Almost. And almost like there's some sort of premonition in there. Like, you know, God's got a plan to, to work this, uh, these high expectations out. You get arrested, you get to jail. And the first other than guards, it sounds like the first inmate you meet, uh, hands you a Bible. Um, and so it's just what strikes me about it is it's almost like um, God's hand was right there, like like probably all the way through. But even with that, and you alluded to that a little bit yourself, um, you know, being able to spend some time in, in the Psalms and Proverbs. But even with that, there had to be some lows, right? I, I, so how did you, where were you at mentally as you went through that whole experience, even going back to from the time you were arrested on through, like how, how do you navigate that mentally? So uh, the funny thing is, you know, you always see in these movies where somebody wants to tell somebody bad news, you know, the cops come to visit somebody's house or something like that. And they say, uh, you need to sit down. And you always like look at that and say, why? You know, it's like, I never understood why they tell them, are you sitting, you know, if they're telling you on the phone, I got some bad news. Uh, are you sitting down? Like, who cares if you're sitting down? So I remember I was at the uh, Florida League of Cities in Tampa and I get a call, you know, from my lawyer. And, uh, you know, he asked me, are you sitting down? And I wasn't, I was standing up, right, you know, right by my bed in the hotel room. And, uh, he said, you know, they decided to bring charges against you. And I just remember, I just felt this, this like warmth, you know, starting around my ankles, rolling up my knees to my belly and then got to my ears and my face. And I just felt like I had to, I was going to faint. I, I sat down and, you know, I don't know what caused that. It was just whatever it was, but it was just, uh. Now I understand why they tell you to sit down before you get bad news. So that was that was probably the worst of it because you know when I got um, you know I, I guess I got subpoenaed for all my my documents and everything else and there was a crazy story there where my hard drive had crashed two years previously so I lost a lot of my documents and everything else so when the state came and subpoenaed all my files I gave them everything I had you know four bankers boxes worth of stuff. Um, and then mm -hmm. they came back and said, Hey, we're missing, um, everything from January, 2004 to June, 2004. I said, Oh my God, I forgot my hard drive crashed. 
I said, I still have my hard drive. You know, uh, I tried to get it, you know, fixed, but nobody could fix it. But maybe you, you know, you're the government. Maybe you guys have better resources. Uh, let me give you my hard drive and see if you can recover the data. You know, because as a lawyer, you know, all your client files are there, your, your, your templates, your forms, everything you rely on. So it really was devastating when that happened, truthfully. So I gave them the, the hard drive and they, they had a, an analyst look at it. And he wrote back, hard drive appears to have been wiped. And of course, that line uh -huh. got into the front page of the newspaper. So, you know, this is before uh, Hillary Clinton and the beach, the bleach bit, bit kind of stuff. It was, yeah. I must have destroyed the smoking gun evidence, I guess, is what they assumed. And I, yeah. at the end of the day, I think that's what caused them to bring charges against me. So, but I had also had a meeting you know, being a lawyer, I, you know, we checked with the ethics board in Tallahassee and we got a, a clean bill of health just to give you a little background. So I represented a, uh, a marketing guy for a company that converted sewage into fertilizer. So mm -hmm. at the time, um, prior to the year 2000, all the municipal municipalities in South Florida would truck raw sewage on those big dump trucks up to DeSoto County in Northern Florida. And then DeSoto County would just lay them on the, the ground for, at the, you know, the ranches, I guess, just to let it dry. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, every once in a while, you know, if, if you're from South Florida, once a month, at least maybe once a week, you would hear about a dump truck fall, you know, flipping over, crashing, and all the sewage is all over the streets. It goes into this, the uh, canals and everything else. So yep. uh, DeSoto County decided we're not going to take your crap anymore, you know, literally. And everyone was scrounging for a solution. So this one company uh, was these two Native Americans who were introduced to me by the uh, the fiance of an associate of mine at a, at a law firm. He was a he worked with the Miccosukee Indians, so he knew these two Indians uh, who came with this great solution. And so they met with me and asked me if I you know would represent them. And I said I could uh, you know I, I was busy. I was a partner of a law firm, I was a city commissioner, a father. I said I really can't you know, take on this job. Um, but I said, you know, get us, you get, uh, you know, head of sales or whatever else, I'll help them out. So the head of sales was uh, who I represented. And my contract with the head of sales said, I can't make any money in Hollywood, no matter what, no commissions, no, no royalty, no hourly wages, whatever, whatever. And that was all mm -hmm. by my city attorney, who, who was a friend of mine. And so when they, be, you know, eventually the city of Hollywood needed that solution. So they put out an RFP and uh, asked my client to respond to the RFP. And at the commission meeting, you know, I declared this is my client and I, I'm not going to vote. And uh, when you don't vote in the state of Florida, you fill out a form, a conflict of interest form. And um, so my city attorney filled it out. It was 100% true and accurate. Uh, you know, the reason I didn't vote is because I could benefit from my vote or my client could benefit from my vote. You check the boxes. But my city attorney also wrote, in the bottom, there's like extra space if you needed it. He wrote down, even though Keith would not benefit from his vote to avoid any appearance of impropriety, he voluntarily recused himself, which again is 100 percent true. So mm -hmm. that was that was that document was filed with the with the city, and you know, again, years later, I get this uh, subpoena, everything else, and they uh, question my, you know, whether I was corrupt in steering this contract to. Uh, my client for the city. So anyway, um, at the trial, just so you know, we, we had a two week trial. The trial was all about the corruption. 
And uh, the, the state had this theory that even if, even though I'm not going to make money in Hollywood, I could take this contract. And there's a term called piggybacking, where you could take a contract that one city has and take it to any other city. And the cities don't have to have, it doesn't have to go through the normal processes because it, it was already approved by a city. So they, they could just sort of, they could, uh, they could say, we want to tag on to that, you know, piggyback onto that contract. So the very first witness that they called, you know, the state called was our, our former purchasing director. And the state said, hey, so isn't it possible that we know Keith's not making money in Hollywood, but now we can't take this contract to Fort Lauderdale and Miami-Dade County and, and Boca and every, everywhere else and make money there. And he said, no, you can't piggyback a wastewater treatment plant. You know, that's, uh, you, know, you, you piggyback um, a fleet of cars. If, if, you know, we're going to get 10 police cruisers or a desk or a computers or, or reams of paper or, or chairs. You know, a wastewater treatment plant depends on the location, depends on the volume. It depends on, you know, lots of other things. So, you know, that was their first witness. The second witness was the guy who was the president of the company that lost the bid. And they were a company mm-hmm. called Florida Enviro. They, I think they were in three different Florida cities, publicly traded company. And I think all three cities were suing them because their process of uh, converting the sewage to whatever, at least drying it, they would lay it out on like a, a area the size of three football fields covered with a tin roof. So you, mm-hmm. you smelled the crap, you know, so whatever. So right. good, good thing. And this was on... You know, if you're familiar with Hollywood, it's on the uh, on our intercoastals where our, our wastewater treatment plant is. Not a great place for a wastewater treatment plant, but that's where it is. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's we have million dollars houses you know, on the intercoastal, so it's not a great location. My client's process was the size of a large uh, a walk-in closet, and they used chemicals and heat, and uh, all you really smelled when you're walking by was cement. And we had, uh, I think, like 10 trucks a day where they had 26 trucks a day. So there was a lot of advantages. And I think everybody understood the advantages, you know, for my client, which is why they vote. They voted for it, even though, you know, the, the mayor and I did not vote for, you know, we didn't vote at all. So sure. anyway, so the, so the second witness was the, the former president of a Florida Enviro. He now is the president of a roofing company. And he said, you know, we spent $500,000 to win that city contract. We didn't get it. So something funny was going on. So that was the second witness. And the uh, after they presented their entire case, we rested. We didn't put on any defense whatsoever. We asked the judge for a, a you know a judge determination of acquittal, and he said yes. You know this uh, case is case is closed. You no know, acquittal. And the state said, listen, you know that that form, the conflict of interest form, that's a separate crime. You're making a false statement to the government through, you know, whatever. It's a separate crime. So the judge said, fine. So he brings the jury back in because this was all, you know, without the jury. And he uh, tells the jury, you don't have to consider count one, the corruption that's been resolved. Just count two. Is this, uh, is there a false statement on this form that Keith filed? So, you know, we were so focused on the trial. We weren't looking at the form at all, truthfully. And, And there was nothing on the form that was incorrect you know, or false or misleading or anything like that. So we, you know, we were sort of stumped until the state made, you know, their representation that I made a false statement on the form without telling us what the false statement was. Sure. Anyway, so the jury ended up convicting me and, uh, which was shocking. Truthfully, I was, uh, you know, that was another, I didn't, uh, my knees did not buckle, but, um, I was definitely surprised, especially because yeah. 
the, uh, you know, I'm a Philly guy. So during voir dire, um, actually, I think it was during opening arguments, the, the chief, the, the foreman of the jury was a guy from Philadelphia. And he also, it's a crazy story, but he also was falsely accused. He was in a Dunkin' Donuts, and we learned this through voir dire. He was in Dunkin' Donuts, and he got up to leave, and he gets tackled by undercover police you know, officers. And they said, you stole somebody's wallet. It was on the table. And he goes, what are you talking about? You know, and they checked him and he didn't have it. But it was like a very embarrassing, humiliating experience for him. So, yeah. and being from Philly, we thought he'd be the greatest, you know, juror. I, I was shocked. And we all were shocked that the, the state didn't discard him. You know, you get your uh, recusals, I guess. Um, yeah. So he was the, he ended up being the, tr- the jury foreman. So during opening arguments, you know, my lawyer, you know, sort of, uh, slyly mentioned that he's a Philly fan, whatever else. So um, I was shocked that we, you know, we got convicted. And the next day in the newspaper, there had uh, quotes from uh, several of the jurors. And one of them said, you know, we asked for more information from the judge and he wouldn't give us any more information. So we felt like we had to convict. Obviously, that's the opposite of our jury system. The uh, Another person also quoted said, we had questions for the judge, but he wouldn't give us any of the answers. So we felt like we had to convict. So well, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like sounds like there may be some reasonable some sort of doubt there, right? <laughs> that doesn't yes. sound like a good thing to convict. Hundred percent. I mean, they they really got it backwards. So it was a whatever. It's a crazy, crazy situation. The worst part about it, and this is again hindsight. After I, I'm already convicted, again we weren't paying attention to the form because really that was we looked. The form was perfectly fine. On the top of the form, it might even be on the bottom of the form. It says subject to civil liability, maximum fine of ten thousand dollars. So this should have been a civil matter, worst case scenario, not mm-hmm. a criminal matter. And I should not have you know, been a felon. I'm, a, I'm actually a felon. And I should not have lost, lost my law license, which you know, it's been 16 years since I lost my law license. And that's another sort of crazy story because when I got arrested, you're required to talk, contact the bar. So I, I met with the bar, uh, the Florida bar, and we agreed that if, if I'm convicted, because I, I really didn't expect to get convicted, that I would be suspended for three years. So we, you know, it's an assigned agreement with the Florida bar. So at the end of the mm-hmm. three years, I contacted the Florida bar and said, you know, my suspension's up. They said, no, you have to wait till your um, punishment has been completed, which it was a five-year probation. So I had to wait for the five years of probation. So I, after the five-year probation, I contacted this, the Florida bar and said, okay, my, my punishment's over. Now can I get my law license back? And they said, no, you're, you're a convicted felon and you don't have your civil rights. You have to wait to get your civil rights back. So it's been a a journey, but I got a letter in the mail last January, not this recent one, but but last year. And it said that I've satisfied all my requirements to get my civil rights restored. So uh, now I'm just waiting for the governor to sign my certificate. So I literally have to have a certificate. So until he signs it, I don't have my civil rights. So if anyone knows the governor, that, that would be a nice phone call to make. <laughs> please, uh, listeners, please reach out. Let her know Keith's ready. Yes, Fine. yes. I've tried. I've tried. I've, I've met with uh, the previous governor. I actually was very close to getting a pardon from, which would have solved a lot of problems. But again, everything works for happens for a reason. That is just a crazy story. So, um, so man. So tell us, since you lost your law license, so there's some fallout that goes with that. Your um, your kids were were younger, I'm assuming, still in school. So, I mean, what was 
what was that like for your family? Have, have you guys ever talked about that? What, what was it for them uh, to go through that? Yes. Yeah, so the whole thing was tough. The only good thing, I, I guess there's probably a lot of other good things, but the good thing that I immediately saw was I, I had three sisters. I ha- still have three sisters. My daughter, my wife was adopted. She was a, an only child. I always wanted to have four kids because I was one of four kids. She really wanted to have one, maybe two, and she, I pushed her to, to get to three. So when I got arrested, I convinced her that we should have another kid because if she's sitting there in the front row pregnant, how could the jury convict me, right, with a pregnant wife right there? <laughs> so I got my fourth kid, who's now a freshman in high school. Um, so it worked. And again, maybe that's the maybe that's the reason why all this happened. So I got my fourth kid. So a lot of uh, a lot of pressure on him. <laughs> so, uh, but it was tough because it, you know it's an amazing thing. You know, uh, my kids were kids, so you know they were in elementary school, and I just remember stories where uh, a teacher would you know chastise uh, somebody who was speaking, you know, during the class. And my daughter would say it wasn't her, you know, like defending her, like, you know, wrongly accused kind of thing. And you know, yeah. it's amazing. The, the sort again, she was a kid, you know, fifth grades, you know, maybe sixth grade, I don't know. But it was just the, uh, she had this justice issue and she, we had a lot of meetings with the school because she would be sticking up for somebody wrongly accused or, you know, that person didn't do it, this person, you know, whatever. So yeah. There was a lot of that, that, you know, and it happened with my son as well. And I remember, you know, I was walking with my uh, kids to shul and I said, is everything okay? You know, uh, or, you know, whatever. And one of my sons turned to me and he just said, they know. And it was, uh, was, was, you know, it was tough because I don't know what the impact on, you know, on him was that, you know, his friends knew that their, his father, you know, was in jail or whatever the story was. So. You know, the the community amazingly rallied behind me like crazy. When we, uh, when I was convicted, there was this, you know, you know, sentencing was like, let's say next week or whatever else. So this, the community had a rally, a thousand people showed up at our local park, you know, supporting Keith. And I got hundreds of amazing letters to the judge, you know, saying Keith's a good guy and da, da, da. I had my, Mrs. Robinson was my either first or second grade teacher. I think she was my first grade teacher. And this, be, unfortunately, became national news. You know, uh, I guess a city commissioner gets arrested. It's corruption, whatever the story was. You know, the funny thing is um, when I got, uh, had my perp walk, they call it, I was in the, the uh, above the fold in the Miami Herald. And wow. below the fold was Anna Nicole Smith. She died of an overdose at the Hard Rock. So I was on top of Anna Nicole Smith, which is uh, <laughs> at least something good came of that. Anyway, so it, it was it was tough on our family because obviously I you know was doing extremely well as a lawyer and now that ended I couldn't practice law anymore. I ended up um, my dad and my sister have an accounting practice, so I went to work with them, uh, you know, helping them with their their accounting or books or whatever it was, the tax prep. Um, I also got a job. Uh, I you know while I was a city commissioner, I became a, a rabbi. So I was able to uh, get, get a job at the Miami Heat as a kosher supervisor. They have a kosher stand at the Miami Heat games. And this was during the LeBron and uh, Dwayne Wade and the championship runs. So it was exciting to be there, truthfully. However, yeah. the year that I was you know, in charge of the cart, there was no TVs around. 
So like I'd hear the roar of the crowd or, you know, and, and people would come to order their sandwich or get a burger or a hot dog. I'd have to ask them what's going on, you know, who's winning kind of thing. So uh, it was not ideal. And uh, it also turned out to be a lot worse than it was supposed to be. The, the guy before me, I guess, you know, I'm a nice guy, unfortunately. So people take advantage of me. So normally the, my job was to go there an hour before the game and turn on the, uh, the heater. And the other gentleman who, you know, that's his job, he, he would go get the food from the freezer downstairs, bring, you know, bring the drinks up, stock up, you know, our cooler and start making the hamburgers and hot dogs and everything else. Um, and I really just ran the cash register and make sure, you know, nothing non-kosher, you know, came around. Uh, and that was really supposed to be my job. Then at the end of the third quarter, I shut it off and I leave. And then the other guy has to clean the grill and take the ex extra food back to the freezer. And he has to check out with the, the accounting department at the, at the heat game, you know, to, to cash in the, give them the cash and, and get receipts and all kind of stuff. Yeah. So my job sounds easy, right? I'm there for an hour before the game. I leave an hour before I avoid traffic and everything else. But my guy yeah, would cool. always come late, which meant that I had to go down to the grill, you know, to the cellar and pick up the cold meats and start the grill and start cooking and stock the fridge and everything else. And then sometimes he would have to leave early. So I had to close up. I had to clean the grill. I had to put everything back down. I had to go cash out. You know, it's just, uh, you know, again, I'm just too nice, which is the problem. So I, whatever. So I was going to quit. And I remember one of the other problems I have is, you know, I was very uh, prominent in the Orthodox Jewish community. So being so, you know, who goes to a kosher stand, you know, Orthodox Jews. So I run into a lot of people ordering, you know, sandwiches, hot dogs, whatever else for me. So some of them would, you know, say, oh, that's, that's great, Keith, you know, doing whatever it takes to put food on the, you know, on your table. So I'm so, so, so proud of you. And other people say, oh, it's so sad that this is what you have to do, you know, to feed your family, you know? And so either way, it's not a good feeling for me, you know? So right. I, I wasn't thrilled about it, but one of my wife, my wife had to go back to work, which was another, obviously change in our family. Uh, so she went to a law firm and one of the partners at her law firm actually came and saw me at the, uh, at the stand. And he told her that, you know, that's a great job for Keith because he's going to meet so many different people there. Um, so I stayed and like a week or two later, um, a guy came to the uh, stand and ordered a, co a corned beef sandwich for his wife, it turns out. And uh, I recognized him, you know, but I, he didn't recognize me because, you know, I'm looking like a, you know, I work at McDonald's or something like that. So, um, but I emailed him the next day and said, hope you enjoyed your, your corned beef sandwich. So he replied and he copied his wife and he said, I, that was you. He said, I, I couldn't remember. I knew I recognized you, but I couldn't, uh, couldn't place the name. And so his wife chimes in. Yeah. The, the entire third period, he could, he, he couldn't figure out who that was. He knew he knew you. He knew he knew you. So he says, what are you doing there? I said, you know, I, I worked there. He goes, well, do you own the stand? I said, no. He said, so why are you working there? I said, I need a job. He said, well, you're too smart to be selling hot dogs. Why don't you come work for me? So I ended up going to work for a guy named Howard Dvorkin. And uh, the crazy thing is when I graduated law school, my dream job was to be general counsel of a family office. And that's sort of what I became. You know, he uh, never, he didn't think he had a family office, but, you know, when I got there, he had a slew of accountants and I was, I guess, the, uh, the legal advisor. And, uh, you know, I was there for six years. It was it was an amazing thing that he did for me because, you know, it, it got me back working at a, at a company. I'm working for a, 
you know, he's a very successful company. I had, you know, uh, just put a little something in my step. You know, I had little pride. I had a job. I had a place to go every single day. Um, you know, obviously there was money that, that, uh, that also helped a lot. And it was just a, uh, it was an amazing thing he did for me and, you know, gave me an opportunity and I'm working with some, some good guys, you know, cause you know, obviously when you're not working, you're at home, so you don't see everybody. Right. So it was nice right. to go to an office, meet a lot of people. And then, uh, you know, he's got like a thousand, uh, employees and, you know, if there was people had issues, you know, uh, their landlords giving them a hard time. And so I heard Keith was a lawyer. Let me ask Keith kind of thing. So I had a lot of people knocking on my door and I was happy to help. I'm always happy to help. So, but it was a great experience and it, it, it definitely did change my life. So that was a great thing. I have a debt of gratitude to Howard Dvorkin. That's super cool. What's, and what's, it strikes me just that, you know, you were, um, Working, you know, basically selling hot dogs. What's here, right? Working at the the kosher stand, and it, it doesn't sound like a glamorous job, but you were there, and with your eyes open, just paying attention, you you met this person. Um, it, so it truly was a great place. Obviously, that, that kind of that premonition the week before. So to your wife, it's a great place to work. Keith's going to meet some great people, right? And, and that happened. So you know, and it's just a good lesson for I think for all of us because sometimes we find ourselves, you know, at an event or someplace we don't necessarily. Um, charge into right with like thinking this could be the greatest thing ever. But if we if we if we just look around and make the most of where we're at, great things can happen from just about anywhere. I think. Yep. Yep. I mean, yeah. Not that I made any friendships in jail, but I had some really interesting conversations in jail with uh, different people. One of the guys who was a, a police officer. He uh, was from the Basque region. His family was from the Basque region. And I didn't really understand the, the Basque. It's between France and Spain. And I guess they're constantly mm. fighting who controls the Basque region. And these were just amazing sort of warriors that everybody, every country, you know, going back centuries, wanted those people to be part of their army because they were just great fighters. And yeah. uh, so he sort of had this comparison to the Jewish people who, you know, we won some amazing wars, you know, 60,000 soldiers against 6 million soldiers in 48 and in 67 and 73. And it's because we were, we had, we, this was our land. We were giving it, you know, we had to fight for our land, for our fight, for our survival. The other guys weren't fighting for their survival. So he said, that's how the, the baskets, why this was their homeland. That's all they wanted was to be left alone. And so they said, we'll leave you alone if you go help us win this war, you, you know, whatever kind of thing. So it was interesting. So I, there was another, um, you know, uh, again, just meeting the guy that uh, was one of the witnesses, I guess, or I don't know how he was involved with the murder of Gus Bullis. That was interesting. Um, so it was, you know, it was, I obviously made the best of it. The funny thing is the, yeah. the guy uh, who supposedly was involved in the Gus Bullis murder, you know, he saw that I was, aware, I was eating kosher food. So he wanted the kosher food, thinking it was better food. I don't think it necessarily was, but uh, so he ordered kosher food and he made them, you know, he was not Jewish. He's a, he was an Italian. So, uh, you know, he made them get him kosher food and then they ended up stopping because he ordered something non-kosher from the commissary. So they said, you're obviously not kosher if you're ordering this from the commissary. So uh, it was also, it was the other thing that was interesting is I, um, I had a lot of visits from rabbis. And, um, 
at, at one point the, it was like almost every single day. I mean, it was, it's important. We put on, you know, to fill in, we pray every single day and we put on, they call talis and to fill in, you know, prayer shawl and these uh, phylacteries on our arms. You're supposed to do it every day. So I didn't, I wasn't allowed to have them the first week. So for the first week, a, a different rabbi came and I was able to put on my talis and fill in with them. Um, but I had to go through, uh, you know, I had to go through body searches and all kind of stuff to go down to meet with the rabbis where the, uh, there was a preacher that used to come up to give a, uh, a Bible class once a week. Um, and I remember one of, you know, all the guys circled around and whatever. And I, you know, it wasn't my religion, so I wasn't really, uh, part of the circle, but one of the guys told me, you know, this guy's over here is a rabbi. You know, maybe he'll uh, he'll give one of the classes. So I remember I ended up giving one of the classes with the uh, you know the you know with the, all the guys sitting around in a circle with the preacher. And um, the interesting thing was I was in our uh, we have the commentary to our Bible. What what you know? There's a you know whatever the line is in the Bible. There's always different interpretations of it. What exactly does it does it really mean? So there's mm-hmm. rabbis that would have contradictory opinions of what God was trying to tell us, you know? So, uh, it was, it was an interesting experience, I guess, from, uh, next time because I never really gave a, 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 a Bible class before. So yeah. I attended a lot, but so new things happen. Cool. Cool. So, so from, okay. So from a very successful law career to, uh, uh, stay in prison to um, to to basically a food vendor to working for a Howard Dvorkin and and now I met you because you are a system and soul business coach so kind of just fill in the last the last little bit of this journey that that brings us here so you know I was always um, you know looking to help people and I, I guess I you know even in jail I was Everyone's asking me, you know, legal advice for their case. And I'm not even a criminal lawyer, you know, I'm just talking to them. But um, when I, after this job with Howard, I, uh, you know, during COVID, actually, he let me go. And the timing, again, you know, everything works for, you know, for good reasons. I ended up, my wife is general counsel of a real estate developer who turned into a, a, if you're familiar with a SPAC, special purpose acquisition companies, they go public, they raise hundreds of you know millions of dollars and they go look for a target. They have 18 months or so to find a target. If not, they have to actually return all the money. So my wife's boss got into the SPAC business. And so I was a securities lawyer before. So I started helping him with his SPAC business. And also he owned a lot of real estate. So I was helping him as a, uh, you know, helping with leases and whatever else I could do to provide help with them. And things were crazy, crazy busy for a couple of years. But he, um, because he got into the SPAC business, he started selling some of his, his real estate holdings. And so I saw the leasing work was, was slowing down. And then the SPAC market sort of uh, started to crash. And I sort of saw the writing on the wall that there was going to be less work you know, with my wife's firm. So I started looking for other opportunities. And um, I... Uh, it's, I was having lunch with a friend of mine. We were, we were actually talking about buying a business together and he was a former lawyer and I was a former lawyer. And we, I get a call from a friend of mine who is a lawyer and he's got a, you know, a dozen or so uh, associates that, that he works with. 
And he called me up just to ask me a question in the middle of my lunch. You know, I took the call, helped him with his problem. And then my, uh, my friend said, you know, was, was that Josh? I said, yeah. He goes, you know, how often does Josh call you? I, said, I don't know, once a month or so, so it would, you know, whatever. And he goes, he calls me, my friend said, he calls me too. You know, and it's, it's not like he's trying to get two opinions. He actually just is like being nice about it. He doesn't want to burden me every day. So he switches off between me and my friend Adam. And <laughs> we ended up talking to Josh and said, you know, we found out that Josh is actually paying a coach that specializes with law firms. And he's paying him whatever, $5,000 a month. And um, I said, uh, you know, you can actually get paid for this. So Adam and I started looking at becoming coaches. And um, we found a program that uh, it helps, you know, it's, it's called uh, Pro Global. And they help um, companies that have half a million dollars to $5 million in revenues, help them grow their leads, uh, grow their conversions, increase their sales and increase their profits. And so we sure. through the training program for that. And um, it's, uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I enjoy, we have a, a daily huddle at uh, from 1245 to 1:45. All the coaches are on a call together and we sort of coach each other. We talk about our experiences. We know what should I do in this situation kind of thing. And I enjoy that too. I enjoy helping coaches, you know, with, with you know, with uh, some advice. Um, and then I realized that a lot of my, based on my sort of history with uh, being at these large law firms, most of my clients were larger clients, bigger companies, and they didn't have the, uh, you know, problem of getting more leads or more conversions or more sales. They have bigger problems um, where mm -hmm. a lot of times they're, you know, the, where a founder took this company to great heights and now he has to turn it over to a management team or a board of directors. So there's a lot of challenges with uh, founders who want to, who need to do that. They don't want to do it, but they probably need to do it. So yep. I found System and Soul, um, and uh, it was it really spoke to me. You know, the soul actually was kind of funny, but being a rabbi and all. But the uh, the system part of it is it's just very. I, I see the tools that we learn, on, and we we have a you know a, a weekly huddle, I guess, on uh, for the System and Soul coaches. And we learn different tools that we can help with, you know, share with our clients. And um, I have, you know, some of these, some of the tools are making sure you have the most effective meeting possible. If you have a 60 minutes for a meeting, you know, it gets the most done, it gets accountability. Um, and then, you know, making sure when you first meet with a client, you make sure that, you know, my first situation, I had a, a guy who's widely successful, but he just doesn't have time with for his family. So I sat down with him and realized he's what they call a visionary. He's the, you know, sort of the genius of the company. He's has all the relationships. It's his ideas. He's creative, um, but he's also doing everything else. So I said, we need to find you an implementer, an operator. And so the first thing he did, we found him an operator and she has been phenomenal. And we thought that taking some of this work off of his plate would give him more time for his family and other things. However, He's growing his business probably twice as much as he was before because now with the operator doing half of his work, he has more time to do things that he loves doing, which is growing the company, reaching out sure. to contacts and everything else. So he's flying around the country, opening new offices, and he's even more successful. So we still got to work on the family time, but uh, it's, uh, it's been an amazing change for him. He's thrilled. You know, the goal of System and Soul is to really make sure everybody is 
doing what they love doing and what they do best. And where those two, they, they're the hedgehog, they, wherever the, where those two things meet is where they should be focusing their time and try to delegate the other things that they have to do, but they don't necessarily want to do. And uh, a lot of visionaries have a challenge giving up control and they'll see that their company can grow, you know, unlimited if they can give up some control. So I love my yeah. uh, system and soul group. That's awesome. 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 And, uh, it's, it's interesting. So throughout our whole conversation, the, the, the common theme that, that I keep hearing is that you, you, you like to help people, um, from, from taking, taking calls that don't benefit you, but just offering advice and helping people out. And this has been the common theme all the way through. And now it seems that you're in a role, um, that, uh, really allows you to ha- to help, to help people that, um, uh, that touch and, and impact a lot of people. So it, it just seems like this would be a perfect fit. Yes. And, and it is, it's an amazing thing. You know, you feel great when you give somebody some advice and it changes their lives. So I have a client that literally he texts me, you know, every week, I really appreciate you. And that's it. You know, it's not like, I love you. It's just, I appreciate you. And he, uh, he, I, I definitely have helped him a lot and I am, I'm, I feel good about it. You feel great. You know, it's a, it's kind of funny because, you know, you tell your kids, like I've been telling my kids forever to brush their teeth, brush their teeth, brush their teeth. And they don't brush their teeth. And now my son just had 11 cavities and two crowns and $2,000 later, you know, and I trying to, you know, whatever, you should have listened to me. I told you when you were three years old to brush your teeth. So uh, I told him to do push ups too. So now he's actually doing push ups. So uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, it's good to have these guys that are paying you. So because they're paying you, I think they listen to you more. So maybe I should have been having my kids pay me. <laughs> listen to me. Hey Keith, let me know how that works out. Because <laughs> I've got a 16 year old son, so if if it works to have them pay you and they listen more, I'll definitely try that out. <laughs> oh man, this has been a lot of fun. So um, before before we wrap up, uh, first off, for um, well, let me do this. What is what is one important or impactful question? that you would leave with our listeners? What, what question should our listeners be asking themselves? I think the most important question is, are, are they happy? You know, if they're a, um, if they're an owner of a company and they're not happy, you know, some people I, I talk to, they, they, the job is there, like, is there, like they're, they feel like they're in prison. They have to get up every morning. They have to, you know, I remember my, my old boss said, you know, I have a thousand people that are relying on me every single day. You know, I was trying to tell him mm. to take some time off and relax um, and, and that the pressure and the responsibility he felt. So uh, I think I honestly could, could help him. But uh, anyone, if they're not happy in their position, um, you know, I think that there's ways for them to get to become happy. They could definitely reach out to me, but they could contact somebody, a counselor, a uh, coach and find out, you know, the, 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 make sure that they're in the right position. They're they really should be doing the things that they love to do and the things that they're best at. And uh, then they'll be happy and they'll be doing the things they love doing. And, you know, like they say, if you enjoy what you're doing, it's, you know, you know, it's not a job, you know, it's uh, you look, you look forward to it every single day. So I think I, uh, you know, I think, you know, clearly at system and soul, we learn there's a lot of different tools to make sure people are happy. And I think, uh, you know, just sharing the smile makes people happy. So that's what, uh, that's what I'd like to do. Awesome. 
Love that question. Thanks, Keith. Uh, for the folks that would like to contact you, connect with you, learn more about you, or engage you, hire you as their as their coach, where would you send them to find you? So uh, corporatecouncil.com, corporatecouncil.com. They can find me on LinkedIn, um, and uh, I'm sure they'll connect. And www.law.com also comes to me, but I think they'll go to the same place. But uh, be happy to talk to them, see if I could help them. It'd be my pleasure. Fantastic. Keith, this has been uh, amazing. Great, great to visit with you and hear your, your backs your, your, your backstory and kind of what got you here. Uh, I've, I've been I've got my planner open and there's a quote. I'm just gonna share it because you've you've had some obstacles, I would say. Would you agree with that? Yes. Uh, and the the quote at the top of this page that I've got it open to is by Booker T. Washington. Success is to be measured not by the position that one has reached, but the obstacles which he has overcome. Uh, thanks for being on. So so glad to have you here and, and great to get to know you. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. You bet. Listeners, of course, thank you for being here. I'm so grateful for you. Before we leave, I um, just want to add this. Whatever grand vision you've been given, whatever dream God has put on your heart, remember, you can. Until next time, be bold, be humble, stay healthy, stay hopeful, and live life strong. Peace to you. Well, thank you so much for listening. For even more on turning trials into triumphs and seeking and embracing success, go to toddhalls.life. That's toddhalls.life. And I look forward to serving you. Until next time, be strong, be bold, be humble, stay healthy, stay hopeful. Peace to you.